Hey there, Brenda. It's Carol. Exactly. So which leg are we operating on? You mean arm. It's all connected. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future. Are you sure you're an orthopedist? Actually, I'm a Sagittarius. Especially when it comes to your finances. Do you have a question? Are you a certified financial planner? Yes, I'm a CFP professional. CFP professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale. Even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. Today on the program, we've got Sam Harris. This guy is a philosopher, he's an author, he is host of the Making Sense podcast. And I would say more than anybody else, he is the name that has been suggested to me as a potential guest on the program. And I've listened to Sam in the past, but I was fascinated to see what what is it about him that that has made him so very popular with the people who listen to this podcast. And now I get it. Now I get it. He's a, a liberal, but he's not woke. And the way he talks about the woke is incredibly eloquent and thoughtful and smart. And you know, he's one of those guys who just makes you feel like, oh, why couldn't I put it that way? Uh, super smart, very big, big, big brained guy. And uh, but he's very thoughtful. He's pensive. He's I think you'll find him illuminating on how a you could quiet your own mind and be enrich it after you quiet it <laughs> um, may require you being quiet for two months in a row. But we'll talk about that later. Uh, but I think we had a good spirited exchange on things like Trump and uh, his fans and um sort of the media and their their coverage of politicians and their, quote, lies. Anyway, we'll get to Sam in one second. But first, I want to talk to you about Jan Marini Skincare. You guys, this is a beautiful line of products. I myself tried them. And number one, they don't smell, which I like. I don't like a lot of odors in my products. Number two, they idiot-proof it for you. They tell you in the regimen, this one goes out in the morning. This one goes on the evening. This one you can put on both. And so you know how like you're a busy person, you don't have time. So like they walk you through it. So Jan Marini Skin Research is a recognized leader and an innovator in skincare. The easy to use products keep your skin feeling nice and refreshed, nice and hydrated. You don't get like shiny. And the Jan Marini buzz is that it's one of the fastest growing professional skincare brands in recent years. Uh, that's what everybody's saying about it. And it's true because it's got a bunch of awards. Um, it's used by multiple movie and TV production sets. It's being used on the set of Spider-Man, I guess. Yay. And it's a five-step daily care system. You cleanse, you rejuvenate, you resurface, you hydrate, and you protect. Their skincare management system has been awarded 10 consecutive years by New Beauty Magazine as best skincare system for aging skin. Jan Marini Skin Research has earned more beauty awards from New Beauty than any other skincare company. The products are hydrating, they're calming, they have numerous clinical studies conducted by leading dermatologists, and you can get them anywhere, really. They're at med spas, aesthetic offices, spas throughout the country. So 
Go to janmarini.com to find locations near you or purchase directly from the website. Plus, they've got some great holiday offerings available and always with just two-day free shipping. Transform your skin with Jan Marini. And now, Sam Harris. Really excited to talk to you and also a little nervous because I've been watching a lot of your interviews and listening to your podcasts and you seem like an intellectual giant and I'm feeling ill-equipped <laughs> to talk to you. Well, uh, listen, I, I uh, want to put you at your ease because, uh, first of all, I think you, you and I agree about many things and uh, I'm a, a fan of yours. I'm happy to talk to you about anything and where we disagree, I think it'll be fun. So let's, let's just <laughs> okay. go. Good. Okay. I feel a little better. I like to start where I can with news of the day, and you've been so smart and easy to listen to on the, the topic of wokeness and the, the religion of wokeness. And just today, we saw a school in Virginia, an elementary school, announcing that it is dropping part of its name, Thomas Jefferson, quote, mm-hmm. due to the pain his legacy can cause, not even actually is causing, but can cause black students, despite an overwhelming majority of the parents saying, we don't want this. We are not in favor of this at all, but it's happening. And then here in New York, it was announced not long ago that um, at one one of these sort of expensive private schools, it's actually happening happening at more than one. Parents must now outline their commitment to anti-racism when applying, and they have to attend anti-racist training before they can even get into the school. This the anti-racist label is a rhetorical trick. Um, so does all of this concern you? I know you've got, you've got daughters and you're concerned about wokeness in general, but I think in the schools, it's especially pernicious. Yeah, well, it does. I mean, I, at first, I think we should just bracket, you know, all the, the heresy we're about to download with an acknowledgement that racism is real and it's a problem and it's been a, a, an excruciating problem throughout our history, right? So it's, it's not, it's not mysterious, this, this, Kind of moral panic we're seeing around the issue of racism now. I mean, we know we know what the past was like. The problem is that people seem to uh, one not not want to acknowledge the progress we've made. Right. So there's something deranging about acting like this is 1964. Right. Given all that's happened in the last 50 years. Um, you know, we, we had a two-term black president, and that counts for absolutely nothing. We have a we have a generation that's acting like, uh, you know, being on the the, the three-yard line with respect to racism is, you know, a moment of moral emergency, right? So I'm I'm not saying that that racism is gone. I'm not saying that there are no ways in which there, there you know there are pol- there may be policies that that disadvantage people in in various groups. Uh, and we want to we want to untangle all that and 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 respond to all that. But uh, we have made enormous progress, and th- there are just not that many racists out there, right? Who want racist outcomes? You know, you know, starkly unequal and unfair outcomes for people. Uh, and so to to not acknowledge that is deranging. And and so we, now we have a and kind of an activist cohort in our society. It's it's not clear just what percentage of of American society it is, but it doesn't have to be all that big to completely derail our conversation about these issues. And yeah, so now you know de- defenestrating 
Thomas Jefferson um, uh, or anyone else from our from our uh, history who uh, who's uh, you know obviously uh, record on race was was imperfect uh, to say the least. But still, you can't you can't discount the fact that this is one of the most important people uh, in American history and uh, uh, still the person who made you know, an outsized con- contribution to creating our country. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it, it, this, this particular activism makes no sense. And yeah, it's, it's deeply concerning that we, you know, these are educators. These are people who will be teaching children uh, almost without fail at this point to th- to view the world through the lens of race in a way that that you know arguably was appropriate 50 years ago but really isn't appropriate now it, it's in fact totally dysfunctional now mhm i mean it's, some of the critics have said this is this is david duke's dream realized where everything really is about skin color it's immutable it's not overcomable it makes all the difference in character and how well you can do in society. You know, these the differences are innate and um, should dominate anyone's perception of another just upon first meeting them. And that's where we're going. And I know you've said, I thought you made an interesting statement because you're not big on false claims of victimhood. And you were saying that they, they can diminish the social stature of any group, including one that really has been victimized. And so constantly, as you say, you know, we're on, we're on the three yard line with race, constantly pretending that we're not, that we're already, we're still all the way down the playing field can actually set a group back. I mean, it can actually, it's setting back race relations and black people as a group. Yeah, because it's, it's dishonest, right? It's just, it's not, um, and it also just, it just violates the basic principle that will get us into the end zone. I mean, to, 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 let's just acknowledge what the goal is here. The goal is to wake up in a world where these superficial differences between people, the skin color, uh, has absolutely no moral or political significance, right? That's, I mean, that, that was certainly MLK's dream and it, it should be ours, right? And, and activists on this issue and a host of other issues as well are acting like these differences between people are indelible, morally important, uh, politically essential to recognize at every turn, and that that any disparity we see in our society, you know, if we if we inventory our Fortune 500 companies and, and our various professions, we find that there's not a perfect uh, representation of the general population in all of those places, right? If, if exactly 50% of cardiologists are not women, if exactly 13 to 14% of, of uh, uh, people in the C-suite at Apple aren't black, right? The only explanation for this is bigotry, right? Now that is just, it, there are many things wrong with that, but first is that it is almost certainly untrue Right. I mean, at minimum, you would need real evidence to make that allegation. And there's so many other explanations that that uh, promote themselves here. And it's so the, the dishonesty of it is toxic. 
not to mention the fact that yeah, seeing yourself as a victim perpetually and and locating your your social power your your status in victimhood which is really the the algorithm that is running here uh it's just it's uh, it's intrinsically divisive right i mean this, you know if, if you're if your politics is based on the politics of identity rather than than uh, looking for solutions that benefit everybody looking for systems that are intrinsically fair right you're you, you know, it's just you can't you can't possibly converge with other people because all you're doing is ramifying your differences. Uh, so you're 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 viewing everything as zero sum in principle, uh, and it's just it's um, yeah it's it's regressive and and it, again it it doesn't acknowledge any of the progress progress we've made or the the principles by which we've made that progress. Mm-hmm. One of the problems we're having is. The, the complete stifling of conversation on this and the messaging to white people and often white men that you just can't speak. If you're white, you shouldn't speak on the issue of race. If you're a man, you shouldn't speak on the issue of sexism. If you're cis, meaning you identify with the your biological sex that you were born with, um, you shouldn't speak on the issue of transgender and so on. And it's a really effective way of silencing people in those groups because you're told if you even try to speak out about it, never mind speak out critically. If you dare say anything critical of it, um, you've you've offended just by opening your mouth, you've offended. And I know this summer when we were in the midst of the BLM protests and defund the police cries and all that, you you were very outspoken in a very, very powerful podcast that I've, I've listened to a few times. And you made a point up front about saying you it was a conscious choice not to put on a black scholar, uh, an intellectual to talk to you and to make these points for you, with you, across from you, because you want to disabuse people of this perception that the color of one's skin matters for a discussion on race or that, you know, your gender has to determine whether you can speak up on trans or et cetera. I thought that was really brave. And I think more of us need to say that. Yeah. I mean, you know, my, obviously my bravery is, is to some degree founded on the fact that I've taken prudent steps to not be cancelable. Right. So in, in the end, it's, mm-hmm. it's not all that much bravery to, to be honest, uh, because I, I just have, I, I have, I, I knew what I wanted to be able to do. And I've, I've taken steps to ensure that I, I, uh, run a fairly low risk of of uh, suffering some you know fatal error you know bit you know career wise uh, for doing it so and I mean as you know you've had adventures in in cancellation and it's you know I mean you're an example I've actually spoken about I mean someone at the absolute top of media uh, saying one thing and being hurled from the ramparts for it um, and you know and I would I would say you know it was a a malicious framing of of what you said, um, and I mean, perhaps we can we can. I don't know if you want to talk about that, but I, I think there's a the underlying problem here is that people want to hold people to the least charitable interpretation of what they've said or done at, at, at every turn, and they're really not concerned to know what was actually intended, what was actually going on in their minds, or what or what. What their their real aims are, right? So if if you can f- discover that someone has said something 
that can possibly be construed as racist or sexist or transphobic or whatever it is. Um, well, then that possible construal is the thing that you you will amplify as an as an activist or even as a journalist now. And the goal is just complete obliteration of a person's reputation and and uh, you know an obvious aim to make them them unhirable. Uh, and so so yeah, I mean I, I've I saw the writing on the wall there, and I have. Um, kind of created a platform for myself where I can say more or less anything I want. But yeah, the reality is that if you are a white guy who is talking about, uh, in this case, police violence uh, against uh, you know everyone, but in particular young black men, uh, you are you are on, you, you you know you have to be on the back foot uh, to to even think you should be saying something, especially at a moment as fraught as. The immediate aftermath of the, the George Floyd killing. Um, but the truth is, the color of a person's skin has absolutely no relevance to a conversation about the, the, the actual statistics of police violence and, and crime and violence in our society. Uh, and it's, it's, it's bizarre and dysfunctional to think it, it does have relevance there. And, um, you know, we we have uh, on that particular point, we're we are suffering a kind of public hysteria around this topic. I'm not saying there there isn't too much police violence. I'm not saying that many of our cops are poorly trained, and we should be hiring you know better recruits and training them better. And and you know, far from defunding the police, we should we should give them more funds for you know to to recruit better people and to and to train them better. Uh, but the flip side of that is the cops have the hardest job in the world, practically, right? I mean, they're thrust into situations that are that are um, that the public, you know, don't understand how to interpret, right? I mean, we're we're in a country where there are 400 million guns on the streets. This is not like policing in Japan, where you can assume when when the guy turns around and races to the front seat of his car, he's going to he's he, he's not going to pull out a, a handgun in fact you you have to assume that he will in this case right so mm-hmm. cops are in all these situations where they have to make split second decisions about what someone's doing with their hands and it's um you know yes they kill a thousand people every year but they don't kill people uh in a way that suggests that there's an epidemic of racist violence perpetrated by racist cops in our society. They're just, that's not what the data show. And yet to say that in the aftermath of George Floyd, um, yeah, that's, you know, I think it was rightly perceived as risky and, you know, many people would have been fired for recording a podcast like that, but, you know, happily I, I have taken pains to be unfireable. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the whole stifling of conversation around COVID first and the the riots over the summer, Black Lives Matter, the gender stuff. This is really what made me want to get back out there, just get in front of a microphone again, because the more you tell me I can't say something, the more I want to say it. And I've always been that way. I don't, I, you know, my executive producer, Tom Lowell, used to say to me at, at, at Fox, MK, you like to go to the place that hurts. And it was true. It, and it wasn't, you know, gratuitous. It was because when no one wants to talk about a thing, to me, it becomes ever more important to talk about the thing. There's nothing wrong with talking about the thing. And we've gone completely crazy on this where just talking 
is a fireable offense, just a, a fireable offense. Just talking about something can get you fired. It's it isn't right. And it, it scares me that so many people have, forgive the term, bent the knee on that. They they don't talk anymore. They're afraid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a, um, it's a, a great inoculation against this comes in in certain areas of academia, although I, I got to imagine those are closing down a little bit now. But, you know, having a background in philosophy, you know, in a philosophy seminar, you know, just, just as thought experiments, you can talk about anything, right? Because you're, you're looking, you're probing for the, the foundations of ethics, right? You're trying to figure out what makes something wrong, you know, if in fact things can truly be wrong in this world, you know, as, as I think they can. Uh, you know, in a, in a philosophy seminar, you might say, well, you know, why can't, you know, what is the difference between abortion and infanticide? And, you know, why can't people kill their children if they don't want them anymore, right? You know, if, if they do it, you know, within 15 minutes of birth, right? If, if abortion is, is legal. I mean, so these are the kinds of things, sentences you would speak in a room filled with, with people searching to understand ethics. And yet, now you know, one would fear that somebody would just you know, take that that quote out of context and say, "Well, look at this maniac. He doesn't understand why you can't kill babies, right?" Um, and it's we need to be able to speak without being paranoid, uh, and we need our we need our actual intentions to matter. I mean, it's, it's it's not that hard to figure out if somebody is actually racist and racist in a way that that should matter right or actually sexist you know sexist in a way that should matter and people don't tend to conceal this stuff right it's and and it's and people should be held accountable for what they really are trying to do to the world right so it's the fact that a a bad joke or or something that can be misunderstood or a or an honest question of confusion um, get, can get spun into uh, a a career-ending, reputation-canceling offense. That's uh, I mean, maybe that was always possible in some way, but it does seem genuinely new in the way that it achieves scale based on you know, you know our, our our new uh, technology. I mean, just social media has has leveraged this into something that's that's deeply. Uh, unhealthy for us as a society. And, and uh, we have to find some way to pull back. Well, I know you've said all we have between us and the total breakdown of civilization is successful conversations. That's, <laughs> and we're on the brink. But I, it made me think because, you know, having been in media for a long time, I do wonder whether these conversations are working. The, the ones that we were having before the complete shutdown of all of them. <laughs> And even the ones that we're starting to have now, you know, it's there have been studies that say people don't want to hear opposing ideas that they, they really they try to avoid listening to them. That's why we have Fox News and CNN and MSNBC on the other side. People go there for confirmation bias and just to feel good about themselves. It's like hearing the sweet nothings about how right you are. And I really wonder whether we've leaned so far into that. That conversation's over. It's canceled. Conversation's canceled. Yeah, well, so I do think conversation is the only tool we have to ensure that eight billion of us can collaborate in an open-ended way. 
me is is the human project truly open-ended you know is it possible that we're going to get through this century and into the next million years of conscious life you know that that is directly descended from who we are now you know know, whether we will be recognizably human at that point is is certainly an open question but you know is is this project doomed uh, and is it doomed in the near term or, or are we going to 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 thrive in some truly open-ended way i think conversation is really the the whole story uh, uh, that will decide whether you know which future we we land in here because it, it is the only thing that allows us to modify the behavior of, of perfect strangers without violence right we have a choice between conversation and violence in, in all its forms coercion right so you know, you know laws are also a form of violence in the in the, in the end you know, if we pass a law against you doing or saying certain things well what happens when you break that law I mean, people show up to your house with guns and uh you know if you do the wrong thing with your hands you might get shot right so it's it's um we have we have our ability to persuade one another based on common principles of reasoning and an appeal to facts that can be you know, mutually appreciated, uh, or we have force. And uh, we should be very slow to make an appeal to force for obvious reasons. Uh, so we have to get better at speaking to one another about difficult issues. And we appear to be getting worse at it. And that's and we and we appear to have crafted a an information ecosystem in, in the media and social media now that is that has all of the signs of being a, a psychological experiment to which no one consented uh, whose purpose is to see how crazy it can make us right? i mean we, we we're now in you know mutually canceling and irreconcilable uh, echo chambers and there are many of them. And, you know, I mean, just to look at you know what's happening now currently in our politics around the election and, you know, what has been happening for four years uh, under Trump, we're seeing a, a fragmentation of media and social media. Uh, and, you know, you, you know, in the case of social media, we've built a built platforms that, that, you know, have been maliciously gamed, you know, where the, where the echo chamber effect can be accentuated by the, the very business model. Um, so it really is uh, something that we have to get straight. And I think the prospect of us just maintaining this particular course, where we're this fragmented, where it's, where it's this difficult to talk about the most important things that face us, you know, a, you know, a pandemic, right? We can't even figure out how to talk to one another about what, what we should do in the face of a pandemic, right? And that's, um, mm-hmm. and, and trust in our institutions has eroded, right? And for, for obvious reasons, but for reasons that we have to figure out how to nullify, right? So you just when to take something that will be, uh, I would imagine, dear to the hearts of many of your listeners, the hypocrisy of public health officials, right, where they castigate people protesting lockdown as being, you know, murderously irresponsible for having gone out in public without masks, uh, or or gone out in, in large groups at all uh, to express their their political opinions, 
you know, the way that flipped when the protests were for Black Lives Matter, and you have you know, the same public health officials, in, in many cases, by the, I think by the thousands signing open letters in support of uh, these protests, which, you know, from an epidemiological perspective, were just as crazy, in fact, probably far crazier than any of the, the protests that were happening uh, in protests over the over lockdown. Um, yeah, it harms the 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 stature of our most important uh, organs of information in a pandemic, right? If, if, if science is going to be that politicized, uh, it's easy to see how trust breaks down. More with Sam in just one second. But first, let's talk Bloomsy Box. Are you still struggling with what to buy your mom or your family member or your long lost friend for the holidays? Here is a great idea. You can send flowers from Bloomsy Box. Your loved one is going to light up when they get your flowers and they're going to show them to all their friends because they're spectacular and they're special. These are not your average flowers. They are better blooms. You're not going to believe the look on somebody's face when your Bloomsy Box flowers arrive. It's kind of magical. And the reason is they're sustainably grown on family farms around the world. So you place your order, your flowers are handpicked, they're arranged at the farm just for you. It's like sending a personal one-of-a-kind flower gift. And they are delivered farm fresh, straight to your loved one's door. I'm going to do this for my mom. So she's going to get them and they're not going to die in two days like you get in New York City. They're, they're going to last because they came from the local farm. Get an incredible price, a huge selection of artisan-designed arrangements. There are no hidden fees, no endless upsells, and free shipping with your subscription. So check it out, whether you're going to send a single holiday arrangement or a subscription uh, for someone special to receive flowers every month, you got to go with Bloomsy Box. And I got you a special discount. Go to bloomsybox.com and enter MK to get 15% off and free shipping. That's promo code MK for 15% off at B-L-O-O-M-S-Y box.com. There is a difference between the way the New York Times tries to get its facts straight, even when it fails, than something like Breitbart or Fox News or, or um, you know, any any you know, organ of, of uh, uh, you know, I would say pseudo news on the right. And that that asymmetry is something that you know we have to figure out how to correct uh, because it's it's um, you know it's it's shattering our society. Would you, I'm just curious, would you, do you think CNN and MSNBC are in the New York Times camp? No, no, I think they're worse. I think they're obviously worse most of the time. MSNBC is, is obviously worse. CNN is, is often worse. Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, I find them both more or less unwatchable now. I mean, I, I never watched MSNBC, frankly, but, um, but it, it I, th- I think we have to be honest about w- why this is, because right? so, in my, I'm sure you know my opinion of Trump, um, but I, mean, I, I think I think Trump really is as uh, I mean I think it, it is true to say that he is the most dishonest and corrupt person who has has who has appeared in in public life in our country in our lifetime. I think that is a fact about him. This is not, I don't think that's just my opinion. I don't think it's 
I don't think this is really debatable. I mean, I think it's like saying he's got a, you know, a vaguely orange hue to his skin or, you know, fairly colorful hair. Uh, I mean, these are, these are, these are, these are facts about him that you can observe based on being able to observe him for now decades, right? I'm not, I'm not talking just about the last four years. I think he is, he is a, um, he's not a normal politician. He's not a normal person in this specific regard. I mean, his, his level of dishonesty and his level of, of selfishness, I mean, his, the, the malignancy of his self-concern, right? And everything c- gets sucked into that, that kind of moral black hole around him, right? I mean, and, and he attracts people into his orbit who will put up with that, right? You know, people who are, for their own reasons, are, are, are willing to, who don't view that as the, the, the moral and political abomination that, that, it, that it actually is. And the, the media has had to figure out how to respond to this. And, uh, you know, I would be the first to say that they've done a terrible job. Uh, and it has been deranging for them, right? And so, because when they see that he's you know, he, he functions by a very different physics, you know, you know, reputationally. He's managed to dissect out a, a, a kind of, you know, a personality cult within our society. Now I got to stop you. I got a couple thoughts. Um, I would suggest to you that one of the reasons you don't see Hillary Clinton as in the running for most dishonest, corrupt politician ever is because, in part, the way the media didn't cover that. They run cover for their favorite Democrats, like we saw with the Hunter Biden story, which has now come out as confirmed. The FBI has been looking into him, reportedly looking into foreign dealings, possible money laundering, a story that Twitter and Facebook and the other media outlets wouldn't even touch. We were told it was untrue. We were told it was a smear. It was an October surprise, not based in fact. Well, guess what? That's not true. And Hillary Clinton at the time, she wasn't the most beloved Democratic candidate, but once it was her versus Trump, they were all in on protecting her, stories about the Clinton Foundation. She lied every two minutes, but we didn't have a lie ticker going on her because the media wasn't interested in doing that. Cheryl Atkinson was just on talking about that, about this reporter who was telling her, we calculated out how many times Trump lies, and this is the number of lies per minute. And she said, how many for Hillary? This is when they were running against each other. They said, oh, well, we didn't have the time or the staff to do that. Well, it might be interesting. She's she's not she doesn't have an adult relationship with the truth either. I don't cons- I don't argue that that Trump is truthful, not for one second. And I understand he may be in a special category, um, but yeah, he may but not be as far difference. ahead of people like Hillary as you think. No, I mean, I would definitely dispute that. Well, first, I'll say you're not going to find much of a defense of Hillary Clinton or, or the Clintons as a couple in me. I mean, I just, I, you know, I, I completely get why people were allergic to her and her candidacy. Um, and it, it was a lesser of two evils, you know, choice from, from my point of view, but it was, it was much lesser for, for a host of reasons, not just to this, this difference in, in dishonesty and, and, you know, personal corruption. Uh, but it's just, it, I mean the the the, or, the ordinary range of lying and self dealing and and um, you know perverse incentives and all the stuff we we recognize in in many if not most politicians 
we have a, a sense of the general shape of that, right? And I, you know, I, I, I get that if you scratch the surface on on most of the people in power, and then certainly most of the people who seek the, the office, right? I mean, it is kind of it's a self-selecting group, and there there are people you know who are in this game for the wrong reasons, and there and it's just you know, many of the the incentives are, are perverse, and yeah, it, it's not glamorous, right? It's, it's it's hard to be idealistic about many of these people. And I would say the Clintons were um, especially cynical. And, and yes, there's a lot of dishonesty that you can find in their, in their backstories. Um, but it's just, it's, you know, Trump is orders of magnitude worse. I mean, he, he's done literally hundreds of things, any one of which would have destroyed the political prospects of any other normal politician. Well, that's true. But what I'm saying to you is that when you say we have a sense of what these politicians were and how far, you know, down the dishonesty lane they, they were, I'm, I'm just positing to you that you should put an asterisk there because I think the media has exposed itself during the Trump era. And I think they have gone nuts. They've, they've taken their dishonesty to a new level because they are deranged by him, but their bias has always been there. And I do think it's worthwhile for people to stop and ask themselves how they've been manipulated, how their perception of a politician like Hillary or Barack Obama was manipulated by a by the glowing coverage they received in general from outlets like The New York Times. And to your second point that you were making earlier about when I asked you about CNN and MSNBC, they don't get a pass for, you know, well, they, they're nuts, but he drove them to it. Well, <laughs> too bad. That doesn't, you know, some of us had a very difficult time with Trump and some of us were not huge fans of his for personal reasons, right? But you can get past that if you're a strong person and you're an ethical person, you understand what the job of a journalist is, which is not to make it about yourself. And what we saw here with with CNN and MSNBC was not a couple of journalists fell, you know, like Jim Acosta, who used to be a straight news guy, he fell. He, he just went totally partisan, got the derangement syndrome, couldn't be relied upon for truth anymore. They all went down, all of them. I was like, it was shocking to, to me to see somebody like Anderson Cooper um, sacrifice his credibility because of what appeared to be his inability to see Trump in any way that approached fair. Um, so I don't, you know, you I, I, I felt like you may may have been sort of trying to explain their surrender to their nonstop attacks on him by, well, he drove them to it. They drove themselves well, I, to it. I would, I would just say that the, the asymmetry here really is difficult to navigate. So, I mean, for instance, just to take the, the Hillary Clinton coverage, I think the media uh, is rightly uh, concerned that they got Trump elected, right? I mean, they first of all, they gave Trump Something, some insane yep. ratio of coverage, I and mean, something like twenty times the amount of coverage that they gave. I can't remember if that was if that was for Clinton or for Bernie Sanders, but there's some there's some comparison between the amount of airtime Trump got, you know, in, in twenty sixteen. It was the other GOP uh, candidates in the primary. Okay, so so it's just they did that right, and they they have good reason to worry whether that was counterproductive, given what they wanted to happen. Uh, in the election. Uh, and also it's, 
I think it's fairly well established at this point that the the Comey you know, uh, you know reactivation of of the email uh, investigation, whatever it was, eleven days before the election mm-hmm. in 2016 the coverage of that and the sort of the, the the scrupulosity of that moment both from the the FBI side and from the press's side like oh yeah we really got to talk about this now from you know you know yet another 24 hour news cycle when there's only 10 days le- left let's talk about Hillary Clinton's emails they rightly think that that probably cost her the election right now obviously there are many other things that you know, cost her the election. She was a terrible candidate, and she didn't go you, to Wisconsin. Yeah, you. I mean, you might. Yeah, you, <laughs> you could say that her unelection was was overdetermined. But when, when the people who were tracking the polls in those last days of the campaign just saw the the, the direct effect, or at least now claim to have seen the direct effect of of that coverage. So, so it's given that history. Yeah, what do you do with a Hunter Biden story? Right, I, 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 it's a hard problem. You know, I no, and it because isn't. it's it's, it it's not isn't clear. Hard. It isn't hard. I, you're you're so much more forgiving of these people than I am. First of all, it was very obvious that they were giving Trump too much free airtime. Even to me, I was a person responsible for putting points on the board when it came to ratings during the Trump rise, the GOP primary, and thereafter. And this is in my book, but we we had many a meeting. My executive producer, my team, and I did about the need to stop to pull ourselves away from the crack cocaine. You know, like Mm -hmm. Trump was amazing television. Every time you put him on television, the ratings soared. But it wasn't fair because Scott Walker was terrible television and incredibly boring to watch. I like him. I like him just for the record. But he is not a dynamic television personality. And it was totally unfair what we were doing. So even though we wanted the crack cocaine, we didn't snort it. Right. We, We made a conscious decision to try to get ratings the old fashioned way, which was interesting debate and reporting the news in an entertaining way, but not not putting our thumb on the scale. They did it intentionally. They knew what they were doing. Jeff Zucker knew what he was doing. Noah Oppenheim knew what he was doing on the Today Show, allowing Trump to phone in to do phoners as a presidential candidate when nobody else would have been afforded that right. Um, They did it for ratings. They sold their souls out for numbers. Joe and Mika, too. They kissed Trump's ass when he was running. Why? Because their numbers would soar on a show that was not doing well. So I I don't I don't forgive them one bit of that. In other words, I don't allow them to use that to justify their overcompensation and trying to ruin him every moment of his presidency. They 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 made made their bed and they needed to lie in it. And the Hunter Biden story was very clearly legitimate. He he had never denied it. There was an FBI subpoena that was verifiable. There were third party witnesses who had come forward to say, I participated in this and let me tell you about it, whose credibility was not assailable. They just didn't want to do it. They didn't want to do anything that could hurt Biden. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I understand it. I mean, you know, it's, you know, I've always been, uh, I've always made an effort to be fair in my criticism of Trump. Because I, I do, I do think it's. I mean, I think intellectual honesty is the the master value here. And I think, I think you, there's, if you think he's racist, well, then you know, argue on, on based on real evidence that he's racist, and not pseudo evidence, right? And, and I, and I think it's, you know, and this is true for anything else you might want to allege about him. Um, but I, I, I think that you know, the, the worst problem with him beyond anything else that has that he's done or tried to do is uh, the, the way in which our 
our trust in our institutions and, and a, whole, a whole a style of, of speaking and thinking about institutions uh, has has just fully eroded. I mean, we're just mm-hmm. you know it seems that it seems that half the country thinks we don't need institutions anymore. Right. And that we can well, just well, let me ask you about that. But let me ask you about this. So I, I've been yeah. following this too, and I've been experiencing it myself as a citizen to some extent, not not fully, but to some extent, right? Because take take Comey and the FBI. I defended Jim Comey. I thought he was a man of honor. Um, the whole story of Robert Mueller and Comey and you know, having each other's backs and protecting each other and whatever, the ethical uh, quandaries they faced and rose above. I defended him. And now I see him as a partisan hack. I really do. I've completely hmm. changed on him. I defended the FBI. I know a lot of these FBI agents. I I tend to defer to law enforcement. I have law enforcement in my family. And I think a lot of women are deferential to law enforcement for reasons having to do with nonstop crimes being played on the evening news as we were growing up. But that's just my armchair theory. Anyway, um, then I saw the, the Peter Strzok emails and the other emails coming out from the FBI and how partisan they were and how determined they were to bring down Trump. And I thought, maybe I have been too deferential. Maybe Trump kicking these tires is not such a bad thing. Maybe we have been too trusting in these institutions. And of course, we've discussed media and how people were trusting media in a way they shouldn't have been. Um, I don't I don't I agree it's gone too far. I don't think you throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? I think we're sort of now at the point where we trust no one and we've become conspiratorial and things are getting weird. There's becoming like a cult-like love for Trump that we're in which he looks deified that's concerning. And therefore his offhanded need to attack every institution that says something bad about him or does something he doesn't like or person, you know, Governor Kemp of Georgia, who's his fan, is it, it isn't healthy. I see all of that. But how how do you ascribe you know, how do you deal with those revelations of dishonesty um, versus maintaining a, a country in which we do have to trust institutions and move forward? Well, I just think you have to put them in their proper perspective, right? So again, what, you, you drill down on anything I and mean, you start reading people's private emails or emails they thought were going to be private. You start reading their texts. Yes, there's no question you're going to find things that, that you know, are embarrassing and, and are all too human. Uh, and that's totally understandable. I mean, these, these things weren't intended for public consumption, right? So, you know, a hack of the DNC or, or, uh, you know, subpoenaing people's text messages when you, when you're investigating, you know, anyone that, you know, attorneys or members of the FBI, yet you'll, you're the, you'll find evidence of bias and, and all of that, right? So, but that no one's surprised by that. What, what people should be surprised by is, uh, you know, to take one institution, institution in particular, the your election um, and all the systems that support it. I mean, we, we should be surprised that we have a sitting president who, in the run-up to the election, would not commit to a peaceful transfer of power in the event that he lost. And then on election night, with millions of votes still coming in, claimed to have won, right? And demanded that the voting be stopped, right? Whether the ballots, you know, the, the, the ballot counting stopped. Um, that, just just that, if you just, just make a, a little documentary about that moment and what it says about where we've come and 
the the divergent reactions to that in our society, right? The fact that we had something like half of the society that simply didn't care this was happening, or they had some construal of it where this is all this is this is not only benign, this is good, right? He's he's disrupting everything now. Now he's disrupting our expectations about the, the peaceful transfer of power and and uh, the integrity of our elections, right? He's calling a fraud on an election that 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 is in process, you know, where we haven't seen any evidence of fraud yet, right? He he called the election he won in 2016 fraudulent, um, and that's you know, and, and th- this should be the lens through which we look at everything that has happened subsequently in the last month and a half or so, right? It's 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 not that if you don't go looking for fraud, you'll never find it. Of course, that there's there's going to be some ambient level of election fraud that there will be, and there'll be this, there'll be crazy behavior. Um, and if you put yourself in a position to just look for crazy behavior, you will find it. But the question is, can you find it at a scale uh, that reveals this election to be uh, completely fraudulent? Uh, you know, th- there's no evidence for that at the moment. No, I, I get gotta, it. I get it. But I have to say, I think that I look at the media who's that's that's how we're learning about the substance of these election fraud claims. Right. We trust we need to trust them to tell us what has he filed? What is the court saying? Does he have the proof? It's it's the same as those doctors who justified the BLM protests coming out now telling us to stay inside and not go shoulder to shoulder. We're looking at them saying I don't believe you anymore. You already sacrificed your credibility. I don't know who to believe, but when when confused with who to believe, people do re- revert to tribalism. They go to the person who's wearing their team jersey, and I think that's why a lot of these Republicans who have have lost all trust in media are believing Trump even though I've said on this show many times I don't think any of his claims are robust. I there's been a couple his the last one he filed um in the state of Georgia that challenged like the, the failure to match up the signatures and how many votes were thrown out versus in prior elections. And it went down this year, even though the vote was five times higher by mail, blah, blah, blah. You could you can make an argument on, on a couple of them. Right. So we're trying to give him his due without losing touch with reality. But I completely understand why people that it's gone. Their their trust mm-hmm. in the in the information deliverers is gone. And just for the record, the FBI thing was not just the Peter Strzok emails, but as you know, an FBI agent pleaded guilty for doctoring a subpoena. They got subpoenas in the in the case against Trump in the, from the FISA court by using a, a, the the um, the dossier, which had been discredited, and they knew it wasn't true. Like there were a lot of things that were exposed. Why? Because Trump fought back. And he made outlandish claims at the time that weren't true in defending himself, but he wasn't guilty. That was the truth at the end of the day. And and same thing with impeachment. There's just been so many overreaches in order to destroy him that, in essence, they've endowed him with the credibility to come out and challenge anything. I'm not, I don't excuse Trump for throwing wild claims around. I'm just in the way you're trying to explain the media's distorted minefield when it comes to Trump. I'm trying to explain why he now has this ultimate credibility with all these folks, because the other side is just Mm. it's collapsed. The the information deliverers have collapsed and it matters. Yeah, well, it does matter. It hasn't completely collapsed. And I think people need to be sensitive to to uh, the difference between plausible interpretations of events and, you know, completely unprincipled conspiratorial, you know, 
tinfoil hat crazy interpretation of events. And, and, and there, there, there are reasons why we have this, this category of conspiracy theories that, that doesn't subsume all of our thinking about everything all the time, right? And there, there's a reason why there's a stigma associated with conspiracy thinking because it, it, it reliably manufactures errors, right? It, it, it rests on, on not acknowledging uh, the power of incentives, right? I mean, so to take the, you know, the case of the, the election fraud uh, conspiracy, right? Now, again, I'm not saying there isn't some level of fraud, but there are many reasons to think that whatever level of fraud there is, it almost certainly happens on both sides in the election, right? And it's, and it's there's not a lot of incentive for individuals to commit fraud and, and, and doesn't, there doesn't seem to be the apparatus to allow us to really commit it at scale uh, across multiple states. Um, and, you know, that's a good thing. I mean, obviously we, we want to, we want an election system that we can be confident in and that, and that is uh, designed in a way to truly minimize fraud and error. And we have to, this is a project we, we need to, to engage, uh, if for no other reason than to, to restore confidence in, in our election system. But the, the reality is, is that all of this is happening in a context where many of the people in power, right, the governors, the secretaries of state, the legislators, the election officials, the judges who have to hear these cases, many of them are lifelong Republicans, right? Many of, yeah. many of them surely voted for Trump in this election. And so you have to, 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 you're arguing to be really conspiratorial about this. You're arguing that these people are somehow incentivized to risk going to prison in order to help Joe Biden. Back to Sam in one second. But first, have you ever Googled yourself, your neighbors? The majority of Americans admit to keeping an eye on their online reputation. And why shouldn't you? But Google and Facebook are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to finding public records. There is an innovative new website called Truthfinder, and it is now revealing the full scoop on millions of Americans. Truthfinder can search through hundreds of millions of public records in a matter of minutes. Truthfinder members can begin searching in seconds for sensitive data like criminal traffic and arrest records. Before you bring someone new into your life and around the people you care so deeply for, consider trying Truthfinder. What you may find may astound you. This might be the most important web search that you ever do, so do it. Go to truthfinder.com slash Kelly right away to start searching and be prepared for what you find. Again, that's truthfinder.com slash Kelly. Okay, we're going to get back to Sam in a second, but first we want to bring you this feature we call Sound Up, where we talk about some of the sound bites making the news or that we think are interesting and uh, want to share with you. And today we are going to talk about Hunter Biden. Remember old Hunter Biden? If not, you could be excused since it was a story that was totally buried by the mainstream media. CNN, Politico, others reported last week that Joe Biden's son is being investigated by the FBI. His taxes, his dealing with China, money laundering, and more. We don't know how deep this goes, but it doesn't sound good. The story has a lot of the same hallmarks as the New York Post's reporting on Hunter Biden in October. Remember that? It was a big scoop. It was about what was on the Hunter Biden laptop. That story, however, which was published before the election, was suppressed, totally censored by Twitter, Facebook, and other social outlets. Basically, no one wanted to go with this. It wasn't just social. It was print magazines and print newspapers and television. Nobody wanted to touch this thing. They decided it was not to be discussed. 
And they said it was because it was unreliable, but the truth is more likely that it was bad for Joe Biden. Anything bad for Joe Biden has to be suppressed, according to the media. So how did the media treat the story at that time, prior to the election? Listen to some MSNBC highlights. Watch for President Trump to go after former Vice President Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, and unverified emails about his business dealings, a story that many intelligence experts say has all the hallmarks of a foreign interference campaign. When there is a New York Post article that is false, um, it's much better for Twitter to let people read the New York Post article and sit there and laugh at the hokey story of a computer uh, repairman looking at a computer going, this sure does look suspicious to me. I'm going to call Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> like, let that out, okay? <laughs> because people will read this story and then they'll go, this is really one of the stupidest October surprises I've ever seen before. But what did he have, x-ray vision? Oh my God, why, why when they're trying to portray a dumb person do they always put on a Southern accent? It's so irritating. Honestly, the, and then they're like, me, an elite? Oh, wait, I love being an elite. Yes, I am. I am. Screw everybody else. Anyway, so that was um, Morning Joe. Here's Christian Amampour at CNN, who seems to forget the role of a journalist. As you know perfectly well, I'm a journalist and a reporter, and I follow the facts. And there has never been any issues yes, in terms this. of corruption. Now, let me ask you this. Yesterday, the wait, FBI... Wait, wait, the wait, wait. FBI How do you know and that? I'm talking about reporting and any evidence. I'm talking to you now. Okay, I would love if you guys would start doing that digging and start doing that verification. No, we're not going to do your work for you. I want to ask you a question. There's no reports. (laughs) So we can't report on it. Why were there no reports again? Oh, because it was buried by people like you who just decided without investigating it that it was untrue. Well, guess what? The FBI has been investigating it. And frankly, it looks like they've been investigating it for a long, long time, because in order to get the subpoena to get that Hunter Biden laptop from the legally blind guy who was repairing it. Remember, he Hunter left his laptop there and he never went back. And finally, uh, the the FBI came in and, and got it. That was back in December of 19, December of 19. So for the FBI to have gotten that, it suggested that they had an open investigation on Hunter Biden. That's how the FBI can't just like randomly throw out subpoenas back in December of 19, which they would have known had they bothered to look at it at all, at all. But no, it was the New York Post. That's a Rupert Murdoch publication. So this has got to be a lie. Um, And, you know, Jack at Twitter who's got some far left guy deciding what gets censored, spoke out and said, no, we're not going to do it. And so the media lemmings followed. And now it turns out it's a very big story. And if it were a Republican, they'd be treating it like it were white hot. Uh, So now fear not. Now they're on it. They got Politico, you got CNN. They are on it now that Joe Biden appears to be headed to the White House. Not surprising. Back to Sam. I've been thinking about it when it comes to race, and we've been talking about it on the show when it comes to gender. And and the reason the gender thing is important is because because the, the the scientific world has collapsed too, right? Like science is done, and you're not allowed to say that there are only two genders and there's only two biological sexes, and you're not allowed to question whether it might not be healthy to put a girl who suddenly at age 14 for the first time says she might actually be a boy uh, on puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones or allow her to get, quote, top surgery, you know, before she's even reached her 18th birthday. 
because that's not allowed. So you go to a scientist, you go to a psychiatrist to check out whether that's true for your daughter. And the, the standard of care is for him to just affirm, yes, you're trans, you're trans, you're trans. These are the standards of care. It drives me insane. And I know you're a neuroscientist. We had Deborah Sell on the program talking about how she left the field. She's now a journalist covering that field because she didn't think she could say what was scientifically true. Um, I feel like people feel they need to fight back. You know, if Biden gets in there, we're going to see the return and the emboldened nature of all of this. No one's going to shut them down. You've got people like you, Sam, who speak honestly about the dicey issues. You're obviously a, you know, a, a Democrat, a, a liberal um, but you speak honestly about those issues, but so few people do that people are getting hurt now. In the scientific field, they're getting hurt. What do you make of that? Yeah, well, a few things here. One is scientists are just people, right? And not everything they do is science. So, you know, you have scientists who express their opinions on many topics, and, you know, as I have here on many topics. And it's not, you know, there's no guarantee that what they're saying is. You know, scientifically defensible or convergent with what they would say when they have to put their their scientist hat on. And mm -hmm. yes, I, I I would agree with you that it is um it's very costly to the reputation of of science and and any specific institution, you know, scientific journals, you know, when um, they express opinions that are uh, at minimum you know, highly debatable in terms of their you know, ethical integrity and, and, and connection to science. And, um, and they, it's, it's wrapped up in the mantle of, you know, this is now a scientific opinion, right? So that's, that's a problem. Um, and there, you know, there are many issues, that, you know, some of which you just raised where they're just, they're, they're fraught issues for a reason. It's, it's hard to know what to do about certain things. I mean, you take the transgender issue, right? You know, I, I have no doubt that transgenderism is a real phenomenon, right? It's not just made up. It's not just a product of culture. It's Correct. not just a, a social contagion. But is there a degree of social contagion riding on top of a real phenomenon that we have to worry about? I mean, specifically with the issue you, you mentioned of I'm sure, I think you're probably um, referencing Abigail Schreier's book there yeah. and just, you know, just among girls tr transitioning to, to being boys or wanting to. Um, yeah, that's that has to be discussable. Right. And you know, as her efforts to get you know, her side of this discussion out have shown, it's it's very hard to discuss. Right. There are people who want to to cancel her over this. And, you know, somebody like J.K. Rowling, you know, gets, uh, you know, at least attempted, there's an attempted cancellation of her um, based on something you know, absolutely benign, she said, about, you know, the trade-offs mm -hmm. between women's rights and trans rights. And I mean, there, there are trade-offs there. I mean, it's just, there are, there are moments that are hard to navigate based on uh, appeals to, you know, the primacy of identity uh, around those issues. And, um, you know, when she was objecting to the corruption of language where we can't talk about women anymore, we have to talk about about people who menstruate. Um, right. You know, it, it is, in fact, true to say that if she were not this, you know, billion dollar colossus of a writer, she probably would have had her career ruined over the, the absolutely anodyne thing she said about 
trans issues there. I mean, there's, there's, there's no evidence at all that she's remotely bigoted against trans people. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a, um, the, the stuff is hard to talk about. And the only thing we can appeal to, really, if this is going to work, is a good faith uh, engagement with facts and arguments and let the let the best arguments and the and the most searching, honest engagement with facts win. I heard John McWhorter on your show saying uh, he believes these sort of woke wokesters are in good faith that they think they're doing good. They're going to help you understand, you know, how racist you are, how transphobic you are. But he also said you they they're not persuadable. The only answer is to fight them. Do you agree with that? Yeah, well, I think and fight by by which he meant in most cases ignore them, you know, go around them, not, no longer give them any power. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, I, I I have to think that more people are persuadable in in the fullness of time. I mean, it, it, we're not dealing with a different species of person. You know, in, in all of these camps, we have recognizably human people who have been persuaded of certain dogmas or certain bad ideas and they're not disposed to to run the the the, the newest operating system uh, that would debug these ideas right and mm-hmm. so it, it's it's we we have to just keep advertising the importance of of getting a, a firmware upgrade here and it's it's true it's true on both sides I and mean, it's it's true on the far left it's true on the on the right or whatever you want to call trumpistan it's not clear how how that relates to conservatism now but um i mean to, to come back to a point you made earlier I, I hold out hope for it being easier to deal with the wokeness and the hysteria on the left under biden than than under trump because trump was such a a super stimulus, you know, he, he was such a, mm-hmm. such a confirmation of the worst fears or an apparent con- confirmation of the worst fears of the left. I mean, because again, much of what is, has been alleged against him on those particular points, you know, with respect to, to race in particular, I think is, is not true. Right. I mean, I, I happen to think, you know, I happen to believe Trump is a racist, but I don't think he's a white supremacist. And I don't think he has, you know, I think he has been unfairly tarred with you know the the good people on both sides or the fine people on both sides hoax you know that that is you know you, you go back to that press conference and yes he did condemn white supremacists and neo nazis clearly my hope certainly and, and my if I, if I had to bet money on it I, I would i would say it's going to get easier under biden to recognize how dysfunctional wokeness is politically and, and ethically uh, because we they won't have trump to point to or you know, mm. you know they they I probably mean, won't have trump to point to if he doesn't emerge in some other so far um, it doesn't look like yeah. it's going that way i mean so far it does not look like it's going that way you've got um critical race theories coming back thanks to what biden says will be his first executive order uh, the mandated sessions at the federal government amongst uh, its workers and its contractors. They're already saying that they're going to try to undo the restoration of due process rights for men who get accused on college campuses of sexual assault. Um, those are not good signs. Not at all. No, no. And yeah, I mean, it, again, I just I just know what it's like. I know what it'll be like for someone like me to criticize all that without having to 
bracket everything I say with an acknowledgement of how crazy things are on the right. You know, it's just, it, it, it's not, um, it'll, it'll just be very easy to do. Now, I, you know, maybe this wave is just now cresting. You know, maybe uh, there, there, is, there is a bizarre effect here where when the problems get smaller and smaller, the, the people who are, who are most focused on these problems get more and more agitated and more and, and act more and more like things have never been worse. Right. It's just, it's on some level, this is the, the narcissism of small differences, right? I mean, just if, if you're not singing from precisely the, their hymn book, you know, on, on any of these woke issues, well, then you're a Nazi. Right. And, and we're talking mm-hmm. about things like, you know, whether you can compliment someone on their hair, right? You know, is, is that a racist microaggression, right? We're not talking about mm-hmm. people getting lynched. We're not talking about, you know, p- people um, having to function under the rule of, of, of you know, race-based laws, right? We're talking about, um, you know, off-color jokes. You know, someone gets into a, into a elevator at an academic conference and when they ask me, you know, what floor, he says, women's lingerie, right? Like that is a, that is a right. life deranging, cancelable offense because he did a, he, he, you know, offered up a, a dad joke from the 1950s. Uh, that's, that's where we are. And it's, it's eminently criticizable, right? And there's so many people, I mean, you know, to, to mention some of the black intellectuals who I, I didn't invite on that podcast. There's so many great people like John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry and Thomas Chatterton Williams and Coleman Hughes and you know many of you I know you, uh, you many of whom I know you've spoken with um, and, and Camille Foster and and uh, Chloe Valdery and and I mean there's just there there are people who you know, it, it shouldn't matter that the, that the people I just mentioned mm-hmm. are black uh, but it does matter. Right. And they they really have a an enormous responsibility and, and they are shouldering it uh, to perform an exor- uh, perform an exorcism here. Right. I mean, this is just it, because the, the people uh, on the far left simply cannot hear it from p- people like us. Right. I mean, if, you, if you're white and and, you know, obviously privileged, you know, you have all the privilege marks. Uh, that could be, you know, ascribed against anyone in in our society at this point. Um, you, by definition, don't get it and can't talk about it. Uh, but there are many people who um, really can talk about it, and and for whom they, I mean, they really are a kind of kryptonite. And, and it's not an accident that no one really wants to debate them. I mean, the people are not well, lining exactly. up to debate Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter about race issues or, or Shelby or Steele, Coleman right? Hughes, Coleman yeah. Hughes, who's been out there saying, Hey, Ibram X. Kendi, just let's talk about your, your book. I don't believe in it. I think you've made mistakes. You've been sloppy. Let's talk about it. And he won't debate Coleman Hughes, a 24 year old guy who's done his homework because he's afraid. But, but to your point earlier, they, right. They can't assail Glenn Lowry and, and Coleman and certainly Thomas Sowell in the way that they could come after you or me, but they won't hear from them. Number one, they get called Uncle Toms. Number two, they do not get invitations to appear on shows. No one's interested in putting Mm -hmm. them out there to say how they feel. And I'll just give you one other small example. Um, It's a stupid story, but my, I am in the Bethlehem Central Hall of Fame. Perhaps you 
didn't know that, Sam, but no, I... No, I did not know that. Now I'm, yes, now I'm was, intimidated. I was inducted years ago. It's not Stanford, but uh, it happened. And um, they there's a, a push by some kids there to get me booted out. Why? Did I say, because I said something controversial about race? No, uh, because I retweeted two black men, two prominent black men who criticized the constant focus on race in this country. One was Jason Whitlock of Outkick, right? Formerly ESPN, a journalist who's super smart. He's coming on the show. I love Jason Whitlock. He's been brilliant on these issues and really brave and has been called an Uncle Tom by everybody. And one, um, Leonidas Johnson, who's got his own podcast. So now it's to the point where even retweeting these, you know, black men with heterodox views of this race dogma is problematic, right? That's potentially cancelable, whatever. They'll they'll do what they're going to do. But I think it's, it, no one wants to hear from them. Like, why isn't Coleman Hughes a, a household name? If he were saying the stuff the left wants to hear, he would be. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a problem. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll grant you that. It's been, it's been a problem for a long time on some adjacent issues. I mean, this is what happened to to Ayan Hirsi Ali, who I I think you probably know. Yeah, um, she's my friend, a, who, and she was on the show recently. Yeah, who I mean, she's a, a dear friend of mine, and you know, so you know, when she was you know speaking critically about the treatment of women under Islam, and you'd think she would have standing to do this, having you know come out of Somalia and and suffered you know all of the the um, uh, uh, the collateral damage of that experience that you might expect, and then uh, literally recapitulating the entire Enlightenment project in her own life and becoming a, a uh, member of parliament in Holland, and then you know being uh, you know hunted by jihadists and theocrats, and and you know essentially becoming the next Salman Rushdie. Uh, the uh, the left didn't want to hear from her, right? I mean, she's she was much a much better candidate for for taking a position in a a left wing think tank than a right wing mm-hmm. one. But right. only the AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, would give her a perch uh, when she really needed one, right? And I, and I, you know, while I don't agree with uh, everything that comes out of that organization, I you know I will never uh, cease to be grateful to to them for doing that. Um, and, you know, so she had this experience that many people have had where when you begin making sense on one of these issues, you know, in her case, the the problem of, of Islamist theocracy, um, and, uh, it, it becomes, um, radioactive enough on the left that you, you have a, it's a, it's a very, it's a disorienting social experience you 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 what you what shows up in your inbox is uh, you know utterly disparaging and crazy and bad faith attacks from the left and on the right you kind of get love bombed by a cult right i mean you just you meet you know really friendly people who who don't agree with much or uh, of the rest of what you may believe, right? I mean, so you know, people on the right, when they when they hear me uh, criticize Islam and, and its connection to jihadism and terrorism, you know, very, fo- following very much 
the line that 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 Ion would would follow here. Um, the, people on the right are are so happy to ha- to have someone you know left of center making sense on this issue that it, it it's you know it really is just a, a completely congenial meeting of the minds, despite all of the other things I believe and will argue for <laughs> that they find just odious. Right, and then you know, you're like surprise, would, right. surprise. But yeah, well, yeah, yeah. So there's that. I mean, that I don't know if you ever saw the, my uh, initial my my interviews with Bill O'Reilly, but they they all went this way where I would say something about Islam, <laughs> and, and it was a you know a perfect meeting of the minds, and then I would switch to Christianity, and and you know it was basically <laughs> the, the end of the segment. Um, so and that's all the time we have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but the but the truth is the 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 worst. Um, the most dishonest, the most hostile, the most gaslighting, the, the most insufferable attacks tend to come from the left, right? And it's now, I get that there's an asymmetry here or kind of an optical illusion, perhaps, because I'm not, you know, I'm not dealing with the far right. I'm not talking to neo-Nazis and anti-Semites, right? So obviously right. What, what they would have to say to me would be, you know, just as despicable and 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 dishonest. I'm sure in the end, but, um, but the truth is, I'm not even sure, given how crazy the far left has been, and you know, Ion experienced this, and and so many people have experienced this, and what many people have have suffered, I would say, I, you know, I've re- I have certainly resisted this i think successfully but not everyone has there's kind of a tractor beam effect where when you're getting nothing but disingenuous uh you know nausea inducing uh, craziness on the left and the right is is showing itself willing to just bury the hatchet again and again and again and we can agree to disagree about all these other things but you know we're nice guys over here um you see people get pulled to into is they getting getting captured by a, a new audience. And, you know, I'm not going to name names here, but there, you know, we have mutual friends who, who I, I think just now can't really make a lot of sense when talking about Trump and, and the election, say, because they have been captured by a right-wing audience that really treated them well, you know, when the left treated them just despicably. Um, and and it's so it's a kind of social and psychological experiment, and it's um, you know I you know I, I think it's something to be on guard for, um, not for political reasons, but just for reasons of of um, you know making sense on these issues. It, we, well, no, we, I like what you're saying. This, I feel like this is illuminating. Audience. This is illuminating. I mean, because I I know on the subject of religion, you're you're not a subscriber. Yeah, I know you don't you don't like the term atheist because you don't need to be called that just because you don't happen to subscribe to religiosity um, in any form, but it's really a rejection of dogma. That's what you're, you're, you're a rejecter of dogma. And I, I actually do like that. I feel like I too am a rejecter of dogma though. I am, I don't think I can say a practicing Catholic, but I'm Catholic. I do believe in God. I don't believe in every story in the Bible. I'm trying to raise my kids Catholic, but I don't I don't really subscribe to the dogmatic religious thinking. I kind of take what I want from it and use it to reinforce moral and ethical principle, principles I believe in. I use God to threaten them, which works brilliantly. And um, that's sort of where I am. But I politically am very 
reticent to sign on for anybody's dogmatic thinking. And I think that's an advantage to me as a journalist, but I, that's why I'm a registered independent. I, I, why, why should I sign on to some party and their platform that I'm invariably going to have many disagreements with? Nobody out there has got exactly my ideological outlook. And why, why would I just put on their team Jersey? I'm talking about as a citizen now, and just say like, I, I'm going to support you. I think it's, I'm always surprised when someone says they agree with everything on the on the Republican platform or everything on the Democratic platform. It's like all of it. Did you look at it? Did you think about mm-hmm. it for yourself? How did you get to that place? And so wh- like I will confess that I when I see I mean, I can't even deal with the far left. I'm so over them. I don't want I really don't want anything to do with them. They're, I have shut down my willingness to converse with them. I don't think they're honest brokers. I don't think they're I don't think they're coming at it in good faith. That's that's what I want to say about it. The left, I feel differently about liberals. I feel differently about. And I think Republicans, you know, my experiences with them have been largely positive. And so I understand what you're saying, the temptation to put on the jersey. But I haven't. I And I, I won't. It's just mm. not the way I'm built. And I'm, I'm more skeptical of these groups and parties uh, than I am loyal to them. And it's one of the reasons why I'm like a little concerned about, as we were, as I was saying before, the deification of Trump. Like, I understand defending him and giving him a fair shake. And and I understand just thinking he's awesome, right? Like, I get those people. But what I see happening right now at some of these rallies where people are like, I will do whatever my president tells me to to do. I will do what Donald Trump, he's, he's sacrificed everything for me. I would die for him. I would die for him. People are saying that. And I don't totally understand how they got there or where that means we're going. Yeah, well, this is where it crosses over into something like a political religion or a a kind of pseudo spiritual awakening, right? It's, it's just kind of a mass movement, and it's happened on the left. I mean, I would argue that what's happened around BLM has that character as well, right? Like it's it's just it's not even trying to get in touch with facts, right? It's it just it feels too good to be right about this particular thing. <laughs> that you just don't want to, you know, you, you've achieved escape velocity somehow from from the normal constraints of of public discourse, and you're just soaring above the, the earth, and that and that's happened in Trumpistan. Um, it's uh, it's very strange. I mean, it, it you know, it's worth looking at the literature on cults to to understand it i mean it's functioning by the, the same dynamics i mean the, the difference between um a cult and a a religion is is really just in numbers of subscribers from from my view i mean once you get you know a billion subscribers well then it's, it's simply indecent to call it a cult i mean this you know, that's a pejorative term here here you're talking about most of the people in in any given society um, but if there's, there's only 15 people in a house with, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, burning candles and they've got pictures on the mantle that no one can recognize, um, well, then that's a cult. And what the hell are you people up to? Uh, and what are you teaching your kids and, and all the rest? And so that, but if you really want to have an honest conversation about the way the world is and how we should all live together within it so as to stand a chance of maximizing human well-being or escaping the, the the worst possible outcomes that are that are, are in fact possible well then you you need to appeal to something deeper and something universalizable right something that isn't born of the mere accidents of 
of birth or geography or you know who you're, you know, what religion your parents happen to to have or you know what what politics they happen to have. I and mean, we know many people inherit their politics very much like a religion, right? You tend to just be mm. you know, following the line of your parents. Um, and it is, yeah, it's weird. I mean, to come back to the point you made about platforms, it's weird that if you know someone's position on gun control, you know, you stand a good chance of knowing their position on climate change, right? Or right. on uh, on a dozen other things that should be unrelated to. And so it's um, it's a sign that people aren't thinking these these problems through based on first principles. They're they're joining a team. They're they're joining a religion. They're, they've they're they're part of a social experiment on some level. Mm-hmm. It, it um, feels good to to be part yeah. of a team. It, 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 yeah, I mean, it's, it's tribalism. I mean, we we have totally. we're, we, we're deeply tribal, and we um, you know, we're we're apes in that regard, and and we're trying to we're trying to leave the monkey behind here. And again, all we have is conversation by which to do it. Now, I want to pick up on something you said about going forward in life and being focused on you know what matters and who we are as as human beings. You are. You're deep into meditation. You've studied it for years. You've practiced it for years. You've read all the books. You've spoken with all the gurus. But the thing that stood out to me and just reading up about this piece of your life was um, you, I read, this is a quote from you. I've gone into silence for a week and meditated 18 hours a day just to see what can be revealed through disciplined use of attention, through introspection and to see how it can inform the study of the mind. And then you didn't say anything more after that. And <laughs> as somebody who doesn't meditate, right. I was wondering, like, could you like short form it for those of us who didn't do that? <laughs> that seems like an important yeah. thing to know. Um, well, yeah, so I, I've spoken a lot about meditation in, um, I, I wrote a book, uh, it appears in several of my books, but I wrote a book on the topic called Waking Up. And I have a, an app by that title where I where I, I and other people teach various techniques of meditation and, and talk about its its connection to understanding the mind scientifically and 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 just living an examined life altogether. I mean, just just kind of rebooting the the ancient philosophical project of of developing a philosophy of life that actually matters, right? That actually changes one's moment to moment engagement with the world. And you know, aligning one's ethics and one's emotional life, and and really trying to to live a life that you, you don't regret in the end. I mean, you, you don't regret at the end of any given day or a given hour, but you don't regret at the end of your life. And what, what would it mean to 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 do that? And and how can we do that? Um, so that's that's really the kind of the center of gravity of of my my interest at this point. But yeah, with respect to uh, sitting silent retreats. Yeah, I did a lot of that you know, mostly in my 20s. I spent about two years on silent meditation retreats, and um, the longest one was three months. Um, and I did a couple of those, and then you know several, you know, one month and two month retreats, and and then yes, you know, you, you can't talk at all. Week. No, it was well, on some retreats you you have an interview with a teacher every other day for about 10 minutes. So you, you, it's, you know, they just need to check in on you and, and guide your practice and make sure you're not losing your mind. 
um, as some small percentage of people do under those conditions, as you as you might imagine. And mm-hmm. and uh, but basically, it's it is silence, and it's you're not even making eye contact with people. I mean, you really you really are kind of locked down. If you have no perspective on the nature of of mind uh, prior to concepts, prior to your your thinking incessantly about everything, uh, prior to the conversation you're having with yourself, uh, you are a mere hostage of that conversation, and, and it's an it's an amazingly distorted conversation. I mean, you, you'll tell yourself the same thing ten times in a row and never get bored, right? If someone walked into the room and and spoke the same sentence to you over and over again, you know, you one, you'd think <laughs> they were crazy. And two, you would get out of the room, right? You'd say, this, uh, this, is, this is not worth my time. But when you look at the kinds of things you will tell yourself, and you know, uh, you know, every hour on the hour, every minute on the minute, right? When you're perseverating on something, when you're trying, when you're, when you're really caught by something, um, it is, it is a, a psychotic dream. Really, I mean, the, the difference between you and a psychotic in that case is, is is that you have the good sense to keep your mouth shut, and the psychotic is verbalizing everything, you know, out on the sidewalk. But that's basically the difference, right? You're, you know, we—if you could just imagine your thoughts broadcast on a loudspeaker every moment of the day for all to hear, you know, we'd we'd all sound crazy under those conditions. And meditation is a technique for recognizing the, the mechanics of all that and relinquishing it you know if, if only for moments at a time and as you get better at it you can you can you know get off the train for longer and what you discover when you do that is that the mind is a is is the basis for for all the well-being you have ever experienced in your life you know it, it really is there's an intrinsic quality to consciousness you know before anything changes you know in, in the very midst of any ordinary experience you know before you you know, bef- before the pain in your knee goes away, I mean, even in the midst of un- an unpleasant experience, there is there is a, a real freedom, right? A real a, a real sense of of you know c- compassion for yourself and for others, and and uh, just an, a, a radical openness, right? And and I mean, this is something that many people experience first. You know, taking you know one or another psychedelic, right? And this is what happened to me. You know, when I was eighteen, I took MDMA. Um, and I had to look that up. That's ecstasy. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, and ecstasy. You know, since became very popularized as a, a club drug, and people took it in in comparatively you know frivolous ways. And it's not to say they didn't have a lot of fun in the process, but you know, originally it was it was you know designed and and taken by people you know very much with the intention of discovering something about the nature of their minds and and that was really the the, the framing I had when I when I took it and yeah I discovered that it was possible to be much less of an asshole than I was tending to be right I mean it was possible <laughs> to be deeply at peace with myself and the world and uh, and to be happy right like really really happy down to my toes oh. and, th- and oh, then and then i using the h word yeah and th- and and then and then you you know then you lose that and then you become interested in why right like what is what is it about how i'm using my attention 
that reliably produces something less than the the deepest peace and satisfaction and love and connection that I've ever experienced, right? How am I, how am I failing to actualize that day after day? And that's when a practice like meditation becomes relevant to people. You Can you get yourself there? Can you get yourself to the ecstasy version of yourself through meditation? Yeah, yeah, d- definitely. Although that isn't actually the the primary goal. It's the primary goal of, of sp- certain types of meditation. I mean, so in, in a Buddhist context, there's a, me- a meditation called metta, which is the, the Pali word for loving kindness. And and in that practice, you you are trying to create a specific state of mind, very much like the, you know, what many people have experienced on on ecstasy, which is you know, you know, unconditional love, for lack of a better word. But I mean, it's, it really is that. It's it's you recognize that love is a a state of being that you can fall into more and more deeply, and it really just it's not it's not transactional it's not like you you love someone because you know you because of your history with them because of all the good things they did for you because of you know because of how much fun you have in their presence no it's you can actually recognize that you really want other people to be happy you you really want them to be free of suffering and the depth of that wanting the depth of that commitment to the well-being of other people, even people you've never met, right? Even people who are your enemies, who are working hard to make themselves your enemies, right? You, you, you can stand back from your kind of the, your, your reactivity and your kind of the, the, the personal aspect of those collisions and recognize that on some basic level, everyone is suffering, everyone is going to lose everything they love in this world. You know, everyone is, is, we're all in this astonishing circumstance together. And what you want, even for the bad people, is an end to suffering. I mean, you want people to be happy. And, and that is the, that wanting is a state of mind that you can focus on. And and so metta practice is the, is the is the practice of, of of amplifying that intention and emotion to the point where yeah it it just obliterates everything else in your mind for the time that you're doing that practice so you just you just feel a, a depth of love for everyone you know for for no reason other than the fact that that's that's what you feel for them right you, you actually just mm-hmm. because no matter how bad they are and it's I mean it's, this may say, sound you know bizarre or, or, or its own in its own way pathological to people but I mean just take you know take one of the worst people who's ever lived right so there are many people on this list um you know I, I wouldn't Hitler. put Trump on this list as you know, it might surprise some people but um, you take, take <laughs> I was um, gonna ask you whether you've meditated on him you, yeah I mean so he's 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 harder than most people to feel uh, compassion for for reasons that are interesting but um you take someone like let's go um, with Hitler yeah, yeah. No, I, my my favorite for this this use case is um, Uday Hussein, right? So one one of Saddam Hussein's sons, you know, his worst son, right? So this, I mean, he is just the prototypical evil person, right? He's no question he was a psychopath. I mean, this was a guy who, when he was driving through Baghdad with his bodyguards, and he, he would see a wedding in progress, 
they would descend on the wedding and he would rape the bride. And in certain cases, he killed the bride. I mean, he did this in more than one case, right? It's just, just the most despicable human being you can imagine, right? So how could you feel love or compassion for Uday Hussein? Uh, well, just look at his, his lifeline as a whole, right? Just to just roll back the clock on him and think of him as the four-year-old Uday Hussein, right? So how do you feel about the four-year-old, right? Well, he's, he, I mean, he may have been a psychotic kid too. I don't know. He may have been a scary little boy. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt it, but he was above all a really unlucky one, right? He, first of all, he had Saddam Hussein as a father, right? I mean, how unlucky can you get? Um, and he was the four-year-old boy who was on track to become the very scary man who, you know, we wound up killing, you know, happily. I mean, that's, you know, that's exactly what we should have done with him, uh, given who he was and, and the, given the fact that we couldn't capture him. But um, the, it is appropriate to feel compassion for the four-year-old boy who became Uday Hussein. I mean, that is an unlucky life. For, through no fault of his own. He didn't pick his genes. He didn't pick his parents. He didn't pick, he didn't, he didn't decide to be born into a war-torn, honor-based society that would, would amplify all of his flaws, right? Uh, and so you can feel compassion for that boy. And then the question is, at what point is it illegitimate to feel compassion for him, right? When he's five, when he's six, when he's seven, when he's eight, like when does he cross over into no longer mm -hmm. being an appropriate target for your 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 well-intentioned wish that he just be happy, that he just overcome suffering, and you can get there. I mean, you can really get there with the worst people, um, but that actually is not the the center of the bullseye, as far as I'm concerned, for meditation in general. I mean, in general, meditation is not about producing specific states of mind like loving kindness. It's about recognizing that that ordinary consciousness, I'm just just the the consciousness that is that is hearing my words right now. I'm mean, just the, the consciousness that's allowing the two of us to have a conversation um, is already free of of self. Sam Harris, living an examined life. I love that. That's that's inspirational to me. It does, and and see where that goes, and see how. It makes you feel and get really honest about the answers to both of those things. That I think I can do. Today's episode was brought to you in part by Jan Marini Skin Research. Dramatic results, dermatologists recommend it. Get your award-winning skincare system now at janmarini.com. Want to tell everybody that uh, next show, which is on Wednesday, is going to be with two people who are spectacular. Andy McCarthy of National Review, who is the one lawyer who's been super smart on all the Trump legal challenges, really fair to the president too, unlike most. And Selena Zito, who I've corresponded with a bunch online, but I've never actually met her. And uh, she's somebody who, I, I love her voice and I love the angles she pursues on stories. She's one of those folks who gets flyover country and isn't disdainful of it. So I think those are two great people to talk to. Well, it'll be, you know, our first show after the Electoral College meets and votes today. And we'll get their take on where we are and what's going to happen, you know, between now and January 20th. Sound counsel and thoughts from two smart, likable people. That's the kind of show I love. If you don't want to miss it, 
go over there and subscribe. Make sure you're a subscriber. That helps. That that lets me come right into your inbox in the morning, the top of your phone saying, hey, don't forget me today. Come listen to me. Talk to Selena. Um, and then, of course, you've got to download and you've got to rate five stars. And more than anything, send me a review, will you? It's been fun to read them. People make me laugh. Some people swear. Some people ramble on. Some people write weird sexual things. Don't do that. <laughs> but I do like hearing from you. And uh, any uh, guest ideas are good, too. A lot of new names that I hadn't even heard of. And then I sent my team to go Google and find and, and call in some circumstances. So anyway, it's been a pleasure and to be continued after we have results from the Electoral College. Talk to you Wednesday. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. The Megan Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.